This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Um, Here's the context of what's been going on that's been stimulating some of that, I think. In chapter 3, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them and that they can't go with him. And so he starts up in chapter 14 saying, let not your heart be troubled because they're troubled by the news that Jesus, who they love and have been with and have been following and learning from, is about to go somewhere and they can't go with him, he says, in a mysterious kind of way to them. So their hearts are troubled by that. He says, don't let your heart be troubled because the helper's going to come. And that's he referring to the Holy Spirit. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, "The, the Spirit is going to be in you. So God himself is going to dwell in you by his spirit, which is a mystery beyond full comprehension to be sure, but God's spirit is going to dwell in you. And then in chapter 15, he says, don't worry, I'm going to be gone. And, uh, the spirit is going to give you peace. The spirit's going to teach you. And also the spirit is going to bear fruit through you is an agricultural kind of metaphor where he's saying your, your, your lives are going to be fruitful. Even though I'm not with you, the mission I've given you, it's going to be fruitful. It's going to bear some fruit because you'll be connected to me. So you're like a branch and I'm the vine. And if you're connected to me by the presence of the Holy Spirit and through the scripture, you're going to be fruitful and you're going to reach others. And then he said this, which Rob Rob preached a fantastic message about this last week. He says, and there's some bad news in that as well. You're going to be opposed. Uh, Actually, people are going to hate you. Some people are going to hate you. Others are going to respond to this good news and become Christians. And that's going to be fruit bearing. Um, But I'll, I'll be with you and I will use you even in opposition. And then here's the passage we're reading today, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 16. We're going to read 10 verses. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray as we talk about this passage. God, thank you for your uh, speaking to us by your spirit. And we call on you again and ask you that you would open up this text of scripture and speak reality to us. Um, Lord, just show us the reality of who Christ is and what he's done today so that our hearts might be changed, Lord. And we pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word in Jesus name. Amen. 
Well, I'm going to walk through this passage with you. In verse 5, he says, you know, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? So he's saying, look, I haven't been talking about my departure from the beginning because I've been with you, so there's no need to talk about leaving if I'm staying. Uh, but now I'm leaving, and now it's time for me to tell you this, and you guys aren't even really asking about where are you going. Now, earlier they did, someone, I think Peter, did bring it up in chapter 13, um, but it, it wasn't an enduring conversation, and it seems like the nature of the conversation must have been, we're heartbroken, you're leaving us, what does this mean for us? And, and not really asking, what does this mean for you? For he's about to die on the cross. He's about to endure the judgment from the Father being placed upon him for our sins. He's about to die as a substitute, a horrific, indescribable death. And they're not really asking about what's ahead for him because they're more aware of what it means for them that Jesus is going to be gone. Uh, they also don't see that the pathway that he's heading to is one that's glorious. It's going to bring great victory for the church. It's going to give them their very reason for existence. And they're not really asking about that. They're just very aware. We don't know everything they're saying, but we can get a clue from his conversation. It's like if you listen to someone on the phone, you may not hear what someone's saying on the other end, but by the way they're speaking, you can, you can sort of understand kind of what's going on. That's the way it is here. We don't know what they're asking, but he's saying, let not your heart be troubled. More than once he says that to them. So we know that they're concerned for themselves. And that's very typical. It's very typical for me. When I hear some kind of bad news or something, my immediate concern is how does that affect me and my family? You know, what does it mean for me instead of what, God, are you doing through this? God, how will this bring glory to you? Not how will I suffer and what will be the problem for me and how will I be inconvenienced and what, what, why is this problem entering my life? Rather, God, how will this fulfill and further your purposes? They're, they're not really asking about that. And so he says to them, you're not really asking where am I going, but he says, verse um, seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper is capital H is written capital H in the Bible. He's speaking about God, the Holy Spirit. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's saying to them, literally, your hearts are sorrowful, um, but it's better for you that I leave. I mean, this is really an unthinkable thought. Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh is hanging out with people. I mean, can you imagine having dinner with God in the flesh, asking a question? Hey, I have a question about God. Can you answer this, God? Can you, I mean, can you imagine the access that they have to God? Watching God do miracles, heal people, cast out demons, um, teach things that people are like, we've never heard teaching like this before. The crowds gathered to see him, see, see miracles of him uh, providing food out of literally uh, multiplying food out of just a little bit or turning water into wine to make a point. To just see him doing all these amazing things, to just hang out with God, to go on trips, to travel on foot from one place to another with God, to worship in the synagogue, to watch God worship in the synagogue, Jesus Christ, the God-man, to observe his life, to observe his sinless life. How in the world would it be better that he not be with us? I mean, that's got to be unthinkable to them. How is it better that God not be right here with me? I, I don't get that. But Jesus Christ 
took on flesh, became man, fully God and fully man, and in so doing so, limited his location in time and space. So it was great that he was with the twelve, but he wasn't with everyone in the same way. He wasn't with all those who believe at all times in the same way. And so he's saying, it's better that I go away, for there will be no limitation on time and space through the Holy Spirit's presence. Because he had said earlier in the previous chapter that he, or chapter 14, he will be in you. The Holy Spirit will indwell his people. And chapter 14, he will teach them all things. Uh, In this passage we just read, verse 13, he will lead you into all truth. So the Spirit of God is going to live in you. That's better then God in the flesh being among you is what Jesus is saying. And also it's better for the sake of the mission of going out and reaching others with the good news because the mission of taking the gospel to those who don't know him will explode exponentially. If the forward-going nature of the mission is reliant upon God in the flesh being present and preaching himself to everyone, then it will be limited to where he is. But if it is the Holy Spirit filling believers and empowering them to proclaim the message and to live the message, and ultimately we'll see in Acts, gather in families or congregations, churches together to be a vibrant testimony of what he's done so that Jew and Gentile come together, rich and poor, every race, every tribe, every tongue coming together to represent uh, his, his work of unifying a people, then the gospel will go, the good news will go forth. It will go forth in power if that is the case. It's better. Jesus says, it's better that I go because then the Spirit will come. Jesus will die for our sins. He will be resurrected. He'll be raised to life. He'll ascend to heaven. And that's Acts chapter 1. And then he'll pour out his Spirit on his people. And then let the games begin. The, The church begins to spread and experience persecution and all kinds of amazing things happen. It's better that he goes so that the Spirit will come. Because here's what he's saying. When the Helper comes, he will convict the world of sin concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here's what the Helper will do. It's better that Jesus go because the Spirit will come. And the Helper will convince people that they need Jesus. The helper will convince people that they need Jesus and show them who Jesus is. That's the point of this passage. It's better that I go because he's coming. And when he comes, the helper will convince people that they need Jesus. And that he'll do that in three ways. Number one, he says he will convict them concerning sin. Um, Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So he's transitioning here to what the Holy Spirit will do in the world. This is different. Previously, he said, here's what the Holy Spirit will do in you as a Christian. He'll be your helper. uh, He'll be your peace. He'll teach you all things. Now he's saying, here's what the Holy Spirit will do in the world. So here's what the Holy Spirit will not only do in you, here's what the Holy Spirit will do among those who don't. The world means though in, in scriptural uh, in the in the context there means those who don't know Jesus Christ or don't believe. Here's what the Spirit will do. He will convict them of sin. He will convict us of sin. Now this word, word convict kind of sounds like a religious word in the way it's used here. 
because it's tossed around in Christian parlance frequently without explanation. It's used about 18 times in the New Testament. And it typically means showing, uh, it usually has to do with showing someone uh, his sin with a call to repentance. It, it can mean to reveal or even to expose one's sin. Um, in John chapter 3, this is how it's used. Jesus used it uh, earlier in John 3 when he said this. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is speaking about himself. Jesus came into the world. People didn't love him. They loved the darkness because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That word exposed is the same word as convict. So Jesus is saying, I came into the world, and by, by teaching the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the light began to shine in the darkness. Some people ran for cover because they loved the darkness. And what Jesus' teaching and person and works did was expose their sin. Now he's saying, I'm leaving, and the Holy Spirit's going to do the same thing. The Holy Spirit is going to come to people and expose, make them aware of their sin. And then we say, well, don't people already know this? I mean, everybody knows they're a sinner, and they don't need narrow-minded fundamentalists yelling at them about it like you're doing right now or whatever. You know, they don't really need that. Everybody knows that they're a sin, the sinner. I don't think so. I don't think so, because what he says here is kind of surprising. Everybody knows they're a sinner. They all know they should, shouldn't be doing some of the stuff they're doing, and they should be doing some other stuff. But that's not what Jesus says. Look what he says. The, he will convict, verse 9, concerning sin, he will, uh, concerning sin, he will convict them of sin, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. This is what he says. The Spirit will come and show people their need for, G- for Jesus because unbelief in Jesus is the primary sin. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit will come and give them a whole list of things they're not doing. That's true. The, the Spirit does take the Scripture and apply it to us. But fundamentally, he's saying he will show people that they need Jesus, that they don't believe in him. The ultimate sin is for God to come in the flesh and to come among people and reveal the Father and people resist Him. For people to not follow Him. Jesus doesn't come as a self-help guru. guru. Uh, He's not Dr. Phil helping everyone get in touch with themselves. No no disrespect to Dr. Phil. But He's not just like a counselor just sort of coming and helping everybody get in touch with their emotions. He's not just like a philosopher. He is God, and He demands our worship and our followership and our adoration, which is a good thing because He's glorious, He's perfect, He's beautiful, He's good, He's righteous, He's kind, He's holy. He's deserving of all of that, but He requires that. And throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen that when it comes to sin, it's always tied to personally rejecting Jesus. The ones who are creating all the religious rules to hold everybody up to are the Pharisees. And they want to keep rules and be right with God when Jesus comes and says, you must believe and follow me. And so rejection of Jesus is the very essence of sin. Unbelief is the very essence of sin. And so the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, when I'm gone, all these times I've gone out and spoken and people gotten mad and run off and tried to kill me and one day there's uh, you know 20,000 people following me, the next day they all leave. All that kind of stuff. 
The Holy Spirit's going to reveal that to people so that they will see their need for Jesus and ultimately respond. It's interesting, the first Christian sermon in Acts 2, after Jesus is ascended to the Father and the Spirit's poured out, in Acts 2, Peter gets up and he begins to teach the people what has happened in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you just a couple of uh, verses. These aren't projected, so uh, if you could just listen, I'll read them to you. This is what Peter says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So his primary starting place is you've rejected Jesus. That's the big deal. The big deal is not that you broke some evangelical taboo. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that it was your sins that crucified Jesus and that you ultimately reject him by nature. That's the big deal. And so he goes on in the sermon and he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the Lord, the one who rules over all you crucified. Or you ignore, or you don't care about, or you think about occasionally, or rather than serve, you just serve a list of rules that you've created or been told about. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he comes up and said, you've rejected Jesus It was your sin that crucified him, and some of you directly assented to his crucifixion because these people are still alive. Some of them may have seen his crucifixion. They were there when he was crucified. But for all of us, it's your sin that crucified Jesus. And when they hear that, they're cut to the heart. That's what this verse is about. It's better that I leave because the Holy Spirit will come. Here's what the Holy Spirit will do. Come. He will convict people of sin. That's cut to the heart. So they hear We've crucified the Lord. We've rejected Jesus. Oh, where does that leave us? We are in trouble. God came and we resisted him. God showed up and we rejected him. God showed up and we ignored him. God showed up and we were apathetic to him. God showed up and we were too busy for him. God showed up and we didn't need him because we've got our own plan of being good and commending ourselves to God by our works. And when that happens, when we really hear that from the Scripture, we are cut to the heart and say, what must we do? And then he gives them great news. Just turn and believe. Be baptized representing your belief. But it is through faith alone that we become Christians. So believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe, he says to them, and you'll be forgiven. All of that opposition to God, forgiven like that the moment you come in belief. And submit yourself to his lordship, because he has made him lord. See, the conviction of sin, sometimes they say, ooh, conviction of sin, that sounds so morbid, that sounds so, what, puritanical, like, oh man, conviction of sin means I'm going to walk around burdened. Absolutely not. Conviction of sin shows you that you're already carrying a burden. And conviction of sin leads you to Jesus to remove your burden. That's what Peter says immediately. Be forgiven! We've done something terrible. What must we do? Receive forgiveness. This is the good news. Conviction 
To be convicted of sin is not morbidly. If you're, if you are walking around morbidly introspective and worried about your sin, that's not the Holy Spirit that's doing that. The Holy Spirit will show you your sin, cut you to the heart so that you see Jesus as Savior and can be forgiven of your sin. If you're here and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, the goal is not that you go out here feeling really bad. Wow, the church, we accomplished our work. Grace Church, we want you to feel bad. Get out of here and just be miserable. Wow, God is alive. I mean, that is not... (laughs) Now, God does want you to be cut to the heart, and there is a place to feel miserable when we're aware of what we have, how we've responded to God. But just like Acts 2, we're cut to the heart, and then we say, God, forgive me. I see that I've sinned against you. I receive you as my Savior. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to turn today and believe. And you may become aware of a burden, but Jesus removes that burden from your back. And if you see Christians walking around morbidly introspection, introspective, heavy, always thinking about their sin, then that's not what the Holy Spirit ultimately comes to do. He ultimately, as we'll see in a minute, comes to show us Jesus so that our eyes are lifted to him in forgiveness. Conviction of sin leads to life. Conviction of sin brings assurance of faith as well. Some of us can say, well, I think I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure I was a Christian. I mean, I'm a Christian. You know, I remember at one point responding to the Lord. If you look back and you say, I'm a Christian, and you never have any experience like what I'm talking about. So you can't remember a time when you were deeply aware of your sin. You were aware, even as a child, because I was converted at 10, so maybe you were converted as a kid. But even at 10, I could remember being very aware. And since then, obviously, multiple times, so if you can't, in the history of your Christian life, ever remember being aware of this exposure, this light going on in your heart and kind of showing you darkness so you look to Jesus Christ, then that would be concerning. If all it is is, I've just gone to meetings, like dropped a check in the offering plate, went to Sunday school class, like went on a retreat one time, I think, when I was young. I mean, I've just kind of been a church goer and moderately involved. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about... At some point, the light went on in your heart, and you saw your need for a Savior, and you trusted Jesus as your Savior. If that's never happened, you can respond to him today. And I urge you to respond to him today and see that I'm a sinner. I have broken God's law. He says that I'm to be perfect. Jesus actually said that, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. None of us are. And that's why he dies, to pay for those sins of our sins. And the Holy Spirit will convict us of those sins, that is, expose them, make us aware of them, so that we turn to him and receive forgiveness. We urge you to turn to him and receive forgiveness today so that you walk out of here free, gloriously free from all that you've done. This gives us hope in evangelism as well. Listen, it doesn't say you will convict people. I think the church has a deservedly poor reputation on this and, and points. I'm not saying the whole, I can't speak for the whole church. But at various times, I think we as evangelical Christians have a deservedly poor reputation in the culture. And sometimes it's because we raise the volume and the intensity to the level that we think it's upon us to convict people of their sins. And so if I say it a little louder, right... If I say it a little more intensely, if I get a little angry about it, self-right, you know, kind of a righteous indignation, I I slipped and said self-righteous indignation, that's what it is usually, that we think, oh, then they'll see it. 
If I could be a little bit more persuasive, listen, we don't convict anybody. And so that takes a big burden off. In communicating the good news to people, it's not all of my answers to their questions that will save them. Now, God may will use those answers if they reflect the truth of the Scripture. But it's not all on my shoulders to convince. It's not on my shoulders to make them see their sins. That's the Holy Spirit's. We just pass on the message. He uses our passing on. He uses preaching like what's going on right now. He uses verbal testimony, personal testimony. But it's him that opens heart. You can't open someone's heart and lead them to Christ. And by the way, if they're already a Christian, I can't open their heart either. It's still the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that converts, but it's the Holy Spirit that helps us grow as well. Memo to parents on that one. Memo to parents of teenagers who are starting to ask questions and have their own ideas. Well, for that matter, memo to parents of two-year-olds who are beginning not to ask questions but certainly have their own ideas. (laughs) So I think that's a failure for me at points in my own parenthood where I thought by, by repeating it and maybe repeating it louder that heart change would occur. Yes, we need to give God's instruction. At times, yes, we need to do that firmly. And yes, we need to do that regularly. But only the Holy Spirit will shine in a heart where a kid or a teen or a young adult sees their need for a Savior. Thus, we need to be, I love what Paul Miller says, we need to be talking to God about our kids more than we probably need to be talking to them with regard to this. I mean, obviously, we need to be talking to our kids all the time. But we need to be praying that the light would go on, which is out of our control, and he may use no telling what. Now, we want to provide many, plenty of material for him to work through, meaning we provide the truth of Scripture to them. And that's what he uses. But it's the light that has to go on. Ladies, it's the Holy Spirit that has to convict your husband. Sometimes what nagging is is you trying to be the Holy Spirit to your husband. That, that's, that's what it is. So I'm thinking, and, and, the, and the same is true for husbands. We don't call it nagging. I don't know if we call it maybe being overbearing or harsh or heavy-handed. So it's really the same thing. If it's a wife, it's called nagging. If it's a husband, it's called being harsh. But the reality is, in both cases, it's a spouse thinking, my spouse has got to get this, I'm not happy that they don't get this, and so I'm going to be the Holy Spirit, and I have the power to help them get this, to give them a desire to please the Lord, and then to change them. And I'm not going to pray to the Lord about it, I'm just going to talk to them about it over and over and over again. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Helper, He will convict of sin. Conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not your cleverness, your ingenuity, your forcefulness, your manipulation, your volume, nor mine. It's the work of the Spirit. That's how people get saved, and that's how converted people grow, is by the conviction of the Spirit. Here's what else he says. He will, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning righteousness. Righteousness is tied to his going to the Father. So he's lived a perfectly righteous life and now he's going to die a righteous death, the innocent for the guilty, that's for us. Then he's going to be raised to show the power of righteousness, defeating sin and death. 
That's glorious. So that's the pathway to righteousness. And the helper will come to convict of righteousness. That is, he will show us the righteousness of Christ. And I think one of the ways he convicts or exposes righteousness is to expose us to Christ, but also to expose false righteousnesses. And I think there's false righteousnesses, plural. See, Jesus is the substitute for us, and Jesus is the one who lived righteously. And when we believe, his righteousness is credited to us. That is amazing. But the the reality is that we can try to substitute all other kinds of righteousness. When the Spirit comes, he will show you the work of Christ. He's going to the Father. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He will show you the life of Christ. He will show you the righteousness of Christ. But there are false righteousnesses as well. In, in, the, in the book of John, we've read 16 chapters of story after story after story after story of religious people trusting their morality to make them right with God. Religious people trusting their righteousness to make them right with God. Religious people thinking that their behavior wins God's favor. The Holy Spirit will show us this truth, that Jesus' behavior is what wins you favor with the Father. Jesus' death is what brings the Father's favor to you. Jesus' obedience is what brings the Father's favor to you. You are right with God because of His righteousness where we live. And so where we where we are, um, His righteousness where we are breaks in and frees us and makes us right with God. We live in a religious environment. We live in a very... Uh, an environment where religious righteousness is rampant. Now, that's not a function of Dallas. That's a function of the human heart. But just a lot of us with religious righteousness all I got, showed up here and passed it on for generations, I guess. But that's very much the way it is. So you could talk with someone here, and maybe you feel this way, or maybe you did feel this way. And you could say, you know, what makes you right with God? In other words, what makes you acceptable to God? He's holy, and we're not, right? So what makes you acceptable to God? And they might say something like this. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and I invited Jesus into my heart, and I go to church, and I serve in the church, and I try to be a good person. I know I'm not perfect, but I I do the best I can. They lost us right after they inserted the first and after Jesus being the Savior. What makes us acceptable to God? It's not what Jesus did and what I'm doing. We're acceptable to God because of what Jesus did, and we receive what he did by faith. We will not stand before God in judgment one day and and commend ourselves based on any actions that we've done. We won't be we won't be saying, Here's here's my perfect attendance award at church and Sunday school. Here's where I served as a deacon, a small group leader. Here's where I taught Sunday school. Uh, Here's where I went on that mission trip. Here's where I gave that money. Uh, Here's where I shared my faith at work. And and God was like, excellent. That's all it took. No, this is why Jesus dies. It is his righteousness. And we must be convicted of all false righteousnesses. That's why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is, it is him. 
And the Holy Spirit has to show us that because inevitably we will always want to put ourselves up in the spotlight. We will always want to commend our works. We will always want to offer something to God that makes us acceptable. And if we could, then Jesus would never have needed to come and die in our place. The reason the God-man is on a cross suffering and dying and bearing the wrath of God is because we couldn't make ourselves acceptable to God. And what will make us acceptable to God is someone else paying the price for our sin. So when the Spirit comes, He will convict of righteousness. We see this in the Gospels. It is an assault. Jesus versus religious moralism. Jesus regard against people who think they're okay without Jesus, but when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit will show us our need for Jesus. That's what He does. So if, if you're feeling a need to do some things to make yourself right with God, that's you. That's not the Holy Spirit. He will show you the provision of Jesus. And by the way, there's secular righteousness as well. It's just a different set of values. But it's rather than church attendance and prayer and Bible study and witnessing to our neighbor, rather than saying those things make me right with God, it's things like, well, I'm a tolerant person. So that's a cultural value. If you're t- like tolerance is the ultimate righteousness, so I'm tolerant. And so therefore God will understand because I'm banking on the fact he's tolerant. And so if he's tolerant, he was certainly like a tolerant person like me. <laughs> So God is, you know, we, God is tolerant. So we are tolerant, we think. I'm open. I'm fair-minded. I'm compassionate. By the way, there's Bible verses on that. We should be fair-minded and compassionate. But that's secular righteousness. I'm honest. I'm hardworking. I'm successful. I'm American. Right? <laughs> Nobody's going to show their flag to God in heaven and say, hey, did you see? This is not going to do it. We need the Spirit to show us it's not a secular righteousness of hard work and honesty and ethics and compassion and tolerance. It's not a religious righteousness of serving God and doing things that that make us right with God. It's the righteousness that He provides in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And none of us get that unless the Holy Spirit shows us that. Number three, He'll convict the world concerning judgment. That's the last one. So he'll convict concerning sin, show us that we've rejected Christ. He'll convict us regarding righteousness, showing us the true righteousness. Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, uh, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's the most grievous thing about the world today, is that the world is living under the judgment of God and is not aware of it. And they won't become aware of it because I'm pushing forward my righteousness. They will become aware of it when we point them to Jesus and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. People without Jesus are accountable for their sins and will suffer eternally for their sins. This is not my idea. This is not just our church's doctrine that we came up with. This is what the Bible says. Jesus said this in John 3 earlier. John 3.36, this is what Jesus said. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is his position. He has rejected God. He is living his own way with a secular righteousness or even a religious righteousness, but not the, he's rejected Jesus' righteousness. So he's not receiving the gift that Christ provides. He's living his own way, and he is under the wrath of God. 
the way to come out from under the wrath of God is to believe in the Son, to believe the righteousness that he provides and to receive forgiveness. And only the Holy Spirit can open someone's eyes to that. He will convict the world about judgment. He'll show them that a coming judgment is real. He'll open blind eyes to people who think, I'm okay. He will show them their condemnation by virtue of what they have done. And he will open their eyes to Jesus who, who provides forgiveness, who wipes away sin. That's the good news. He also says the ruler of this world is judged. That is Satan. So his death and his resurrection defeats the power of Satan. And the Spirit reveals this to us through his scripture. So the Holy Spirit opens eyes that, that there is judgment, but there is a substitute as well. Jesus was judged in our place for those who will believe. So we can receive the judgment that's due us, the wrath of God, or we can say, I believe in Christ, I turn to Christ, I repent for my sin, I believe, I lean wholly on him, and his death is the judgment of God against my sins. It, it, it almost, if you're new, maybe skeptical even, you say, that, that sounds like too good to be true. That's why it's called grace. It, it sounds too good to be true, but it's true, and it's good. We can trust that as we communicate the gospel in different ways to people, that the Holy Spirit will shine and show these things to them. He'll shine in the heart and show them they're a sinner. Not so they walk around feeling burdened and bad, but so that they come to Jesus. Because the helper shows us our need for Jesus. Convicted concerning righteousness. You're not saved just because you go to church. You're not saved because you're tolerant and hardworking and a genuinely, generally good person. You're, you're a sinner before God, so am I. And, and your chief sin is that you're not looking to Jesus as your Savior, but you're looking to yourself. And judgment. There's judgment coming for this. The Holy Spirit will show that and say, here's this salvation from judgment, the rescue, Jesus Christ, the rescuer. That's what Savior means, is rescuer. Jesus rescues us from the judgment, from the wrath of God. That's what the Holy Spirit will show us. Show us. He does that through the scripture. He speaks to them. Look what he says in verse 12. We'll wrap up with these last verses. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit, he's saying to the disciples, I'm leaving. Here's the context. I'm leaving. Don't let your heart be troubled. The mission's going to go on because the Holy Spirit is going to win people to, to God by showing them Jesus. You don't have to worry about the conviction of sin. You don't have to worry about um, undermining false righteousness and holding up the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to worry about people being aware of judgment. Yes, some people will laugh and say you're crazy, but some people will say that's true because the Holy Spirit's going to speak to their heart. So burdens off in terms of convicting people. Let's let the Holy Spirit do his job. Let's just speak the message that he uses to do his job. So he's telling them, and by the way, he's saying, uh, the Spirit's going to give you, Spirit of truth has come, he's going to guide you into all truth. For these guys, it means you're going to write the Bible. Basically, the Spirit's going to guide you into truth, you're going to write the Scripture. For us, it means that God speaks to us and illuminates the Scripture so that we understand it. That's the work of the Spirit as well. And then he says this, um, absolutely love this, when the, uh, verse 14 
Uh, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's saying here's what the Spirit will do. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will shine a blazing spotlight on Jesus Christ. You heard the language of I want to be a Spirit-filled person or we want to be a Spirit-filled church. Here's how you know when the Spirit's, when you're full of the Spirit. Here's how you know when the church is filled with the Spirit. There's a focus on Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because he said, I will draw attention to him. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, when Jesus didn't say, when the Spirit comes, he will shine the light on your church. He will shine the light on your leaders. He will shine the light on your methodology. He will shine the light on your church program. He doesn't even say the Holy Spirit will come and shine the light on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit point to Jesus. He doesn't say, you, he, he will shine the light on your preacher. He says, if your preacher's doing his job, the preaching will come and the light will be shining on Jesus so that he's the one you're aware of. He will shine the light on your worship band. No, the worship band will lead us in songs that highlight Jesus. The Holy Spirit will be highlighting Jesus. He won't be as highlighting us, what we're doing, our denomination, our style of ministry. Our, he won't even be shining the light on our mission. He'll be shining the light on Jesus. And as he is, people jump on board and get a part of the mission. The key to mission is not emphasizing mission. The key to mission is emphasizing Jesus. And as we emphasize Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Shine the light on Jesus. Mission will flow from that. Shine the light on Jesus. Growth in Christ will flow from that. Shine the light on Jesus. Maturity in the body of Christ flows from that. That's how we know the Holy Spirit's around. Also, unbelievers will be meeting Jesus Christ because as we hold Him up, Unbelievers come to faith. Why? Because we've got a great technique, a great program? No, because the Holy Spirit, the helper, convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I've just been thinking in these days what it would be like if we, well, if we really cried out in prayer. If we took the stirrings, and I think there are some stirrings happening in some people's hearts, if those stirrings were to spread and grow, as we came to God in prayer and say, God, we can do nothing. Jesus says that, chapter 15. Without me, you can do nothing in terms of bearing fruit. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us in such an increasing way that these would be the results of what we read here. I mean, what would happen if God gripped a people with this reality that the Spirit is alive and active as we are talking about Christ and teaching his word and living out our faith together? What would happen I mean, imagine if there was a gratitude in our hearts for the helper that has come because of the work of Christ. So that we're, as the person who emailed me, we're daily grateful. God, you're with me. God, you're speaking to me through the scripture. You're alive. You're helping me. You're changing me. You're making me aware of you. I'm thankful. It's the Holy Spirit is living. The Christian faith is living. It's not just a Sunday meeting I go to. It's my life. What if we expected him to work through us? What if we really expected that he would bear fruit through our lives? Our sorry little lives. Our wimpy, sorry, imperfect little lives. What if we believe that God could use people like us to communicate the gospel to those who don't know him, to put our arm around those who do and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ? What if we really believe that the Holy Spirit 
desires to cut people to the heart, showing them their need so that they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And they get saved. What if we really believe that's what he is doing? What if there was a grace in our congregation where people would trust God to bring conviction without trying to be the Holy Spirit? That doesn't mean we don't speak the truth to one another. We do. That doesn't mean we never correct our children, our spouse, our friend. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be open to receiving correction. We should. But what if we as a people embrace this reality? There is one Holy Spirit and I am not Him. And I trust God to bring life change and I'm praying for that. What if a group of people got around that idea and lived it out? What if a group of people said, I want a diminishing self-righteousness, I want to be convicted of my false righteousness, everything that I'm presenting to God or everything I'm presenting to everyone else to look good and holy and righteous and acceptable and pleasing in your eyes? What if I said enough with that, I'm going to be real, my hope is on the righteousness of Christ so I can just be honest about who I am? What if a group of people took this and in the fear of God we anticipated the judgment that awaits those who don't know Him and we said, God, empower me to open my mouth. Because He will convict of judgment, but He does it through our words, through His word, through our speaking. What if there was a growth in truth as God is speaking to us through His word, teaching us all things so that He is more amazing to us as we're learning What if there was a greater focus of Jesus in our lives with greater joy, greater love, greater adoration of Him? What if all of these things were true? A walking closely with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, a leaning and trusting on His convicting work, an opening our mouth to those who need Him, a diminishing self-righteousness, a fear of God that motivated us by love for those who face a coming judgment. God cutting people to the heart and showing them the Savior. God helping us grow by the power of His Holy Spirit. God leading us into all truth by His Scripture. That's renewal. That's revival. That's God at work among His people by the Spirit so that it's not a religious activity or deal. It's living faith in the presence of God with anticipation of God, with awareness of God, with a heart for God. That's the way it's meant to be. Because the Helper has come and He lives in us. He will convince people that they need Jesus. He will convince us as Christians that we need Jesus today. He will show us who Jesus is. May He shine His light on Jesus Christ and do a mighty work. May what is stirring grow. May there be an emboldening of us in Christ. May He change us. May He have His way. Let's pray and ask Him to do that. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.